Well, we all enjoy a good story. Uh, We know this because we spend hours, tons of time, telling stories, listening to stories, retelling stories. Uh, My family's in town, uh, parents and brother, and we sat around the dinner table over a good dinner and told stories, some funny, some sad. Uh, But we, we think in stories we're a storied people because stories are intrinsic to the way we as humans communicate our hopes, our dreams, our fears, our excitements, our failures. We communicate in story because we, we think in stories. Most of us, I would venture to say, learn to read as children because our parent or grandmother, whoever read us stories over and over, maybe the same story over and over and over. No, uh, no doubt you will tell stories today. You've told stories to one another already probably. You'll tell stories to each other after church about a conversation you had over lunch about something that happened this weekend about how the kids weren't exactly cooperative this morning maybe you'll you'll tell a story here's the significant point stories in our minds and our hearts help define the way we interact in and with the world and with one another this is why why preaching through scripture is so significant so significant because scripture gives us the true story of the world of God and his creation and his holiness and his relationships with his people, with all of creation, with his church, with us. Scripture gives us the true story. The Bible extends from creation to new creation, from Exodus to the cross, from Israel to the church, laying out this grand true story so that we will define our lives by it, not by, as Ray prayed, our imaginations, our expectations, but by God's word. And so the story we want to tell, we want to look at today is the story of God's vineyard. The story just like Isaiah, the story of God, God's vineyard unfolds in microcosm, the story of the book of Isaiah, I think. And the story of God's vineyard is the story of God's total love for his people. God's total love for his people, which demands a total response from us. It's a story of, of judgment of sin, but a story of redemption and restoration because of God's holy justice and righteousness. And so this is a story today in which I think uh, I want us to hear three parts to this story. Imagine that, a sermon with three parts. First, from Isaiah 5, we'll hear of God's patient but sure judgment of his people's sin because of their selfish desires, their selfish wants. And second, from Isaiah 27, we'll learn of God's gracious redemption, his restoration of Israel because he punished their sin. We'll see that God judges sin in order to redeem, to restore his people. And third, when we come, we look in the New Testament to the words of Christ to see that because God's people, God's true people are in Christ, God's true people can and will bear the fruit that God has always intended for his people to bear. So a three-part story. If you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 5 with me. Isaiah 5. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some in, in front of you in the, in the bottom of the chair there. Isaiah 5. And I want us to read Isaiah 5 in the way that Isaiah's audience would have heard this. 
Remember, we're before Isaiah 6. This is early in Isaiah's ministry, before King Uzziah has died in 740 B.C. Isaiah's just getting going as a prophet in Judah. And the situation is dire, as we've learned the last couple weeks. But Isaiah, perhaps in Jerusalem, uh, where a lot of prophets, especially in Judah, would have operated, shows up one day and says this in Isaiah 5.1, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. If we were hearing Isaiah preach this, we would be very excited. As an Israelite, as a Judite in that day, a vineyard was a wonderful thing in Israel. In Genesis 9.20, one of the first things Noah does when he gets off the boat is he plants a vineyard. The promised land, Deuteronomy 8.8 tells us, was speckled with vines. Land was a good land, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey. God promises through Moses, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God. The promised land was a land of beautiful vineyards. Deuteronomy 28, the blessings and the curses of the covenant. It's a blessing of the Lord to have a properly working, abundant, fruitful vineyard. Maybe Isaiah is even speaking metaphorically about a wedding about the relationship between a husband and a wife. Song of Songs uses this vineyard imagery referring to the bride for her husband, the husband's gift to a bride of a great vineyard. You can just envision the the dads listening to Isaiah saying, go get your mother, she loves these kind of things, these love stories, to the kids. It's a beautiful, wonderful, lovely thought. If he's in Jerusalem, you can look at the hillsides and see the vines speckling the landscape. Yet verse 2 indicates not all is well. But it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield wild grapes, when I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? This vineyard, whatever this vineyard is, Isaiah is talking about, should have brought fruit. Beautiful, ripe grapes. Yet it yielded stink fruit. The word literally literally is. So the scene shifts in verse 3 from maybe this wedding, beautiful, exciting scene, to in verse 3 to a trial. Isaiah says, those who are listening to me, inhabitants of Jerusalem... Judge between me, the beloved, and my vineyard. So we've gone from a wedding to a courtroom. And those who are listening are called to be witnesses and to make a judgment about the relationship between this beloved and his vineyard. Because it yielded these wild grapes, it has gone against its very nature. A vine is supposed to produce grapes, fruit. That's what it exists for. But it yielded stink fruit. So in verse 5, Isaiah says, And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. 
I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. And briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Because this vineyard did not produce the fruit it was made to produce, it will now be judged, started over, burnt down, trampled, all the protections removed. A vine, as you see in verse 2, to protect the vineyard, there was a hedge wall built up around it. Now the beloved is going to take that down so that animals and invaders can break in and, and tear it to shreds. Briars and thorns, which are death for crops, are going to grow up. And the beloved will even command the rain not to rain upon it. An indication of covenant curses coming upon the nation. So we've gone from a lovely story to a tragic story. From maybe a wedding or the blessings of the promised land to a trial and to a conviction. And Isaiah in verse 7 gives us the twist. Isaiah interprets the story for his listeners. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Imagine hearing Isaiah and being excited about this wedding, this husband and wife, and then to hear now Isaiah say, the vineyard is them. They are the vineyard. They have produced stink fruit. They are the ones now whose protections are being removed, whose provisions are being taken away, who will be exposed to every kind of invader, animal, Predator, there is. This is just like what Nathan the prophet does with David. 2 Samuel 12. Remember 2 Samuel 11? David has stayed back. The army's gone out to fight. David stays home, a strange thing for a king, the leader of the army, to do. And then he sees Bathsheba. And his desires, his wants grow in him, and he sins with Bathsheba. And in order to cover it up, he sends Uriah out, right, to the front lines with the order for the army to draw back. So Uriah is exposed and killed. At the end of 2 Samuel 11, the narrator says, And David displeased the Lord. So the Lord sends Nathan the prophet to David, and Nathan tells David a story. There were two men, a rich man and a poor man. And, and a rich man had herds and herds of sheep, flocks of sheep. But the poor man had one little ewe lamb. And the poor man loved this lamb, and he nursed it, and it grew up with him. It was like a daughter to him, it says. And then a traveler came to the city and needed some food and came to the rich man, and the rich man with tons of sheep, cattle. Rather than give him one of his, goes to the poor man and steal the poor, steals the poor man's one ewe lamb. David, listening to this story, says, This man deserves to die. And to pay back fourfold what he has stolen. Nathan says, you are the man. Israel is the man here in this story. The rich man who has stolen, who has taken, 
who has committed bloodshed instead of justice. The outcry in verse 7 is the cry of the oppressed, the oppressed in Israel. And David, or, sorry, Isaiah is speaking not just to Judah, but to all of Israel. Before the fall of Samaria, which we are right now in 722, Isaiah is thinking of the whole nation, not just Judah. So the whole of Israel, north and south, has committed sin against God. The story of God's vineyard is the story of Israel's sin and God's coming judgment for that sin. Look at the rest of Isaiah 5 to see what these sins were. The oppression of the poor. The building of house to house, it says in verse 8. Those who already have a house take the tiny shack of their poor neighbor and build another house on top of it so that they live alone in the land by themselves and all their wealth. Verse 11 and 12, the pleasure seekers, the drinkers, and the partiers who are oblivious to the works of the Lord. Verses 18 and 19, the entertainment of sin in Israel so that it becomes bondage. Verse 20, the public reversal of the moral code. Evil becomes good, and the society calls good evil. Verse 21, the celebration of one's own opinion and rights at the cost of all others. Verses 22 and 23, wicked judges, wicked leaders who excel only at drinking wine but pervert justice in the courts. They accept bribes, they acquit the guilty, and they convict the innocent. This is the unrighteousness, the bloodshed, the outcry going on in Israel. Alec Mortera says this, Justice is the righting of wrongs, while bloodshed is the inflicting of wrongs. Righteousness is right living and right relationships, while to cry indicates wrong relationships and the anguish of the oppressed. Even the words in Hebrew are twisted just a bit. They sound like bloodshed, sound like, sounds like justice, but it's a perversion, it's just off. Outcry sounds like righteousness, but it's perversion. It's off. This is the state of affairs in Israel. It's the state of sin. If we go back to verses 1 and 2 in Isaiah 5, this is completely opposite of what the Lord intended for his vineyard. Think about the story of the Old Testament up to this point. He created all things, created Adam and Eve, and put them in his garden. All provisions, no shame. Yet Adam, as we know, sins, man falls. Even still, God promises a seed, an offspring, to come from the woman. And in Genesis eleven twelve, he calls Abram, Abraham and, and promises him blessing and land and offspring. He makes a covenant with Abraham and reiterates that covenant to Abraham's offspring. When those offspring go into Egypt, as the Lord said they would in Genesis 15, he rescues them through Moses brings them out of slavery. In Exodus 15, 17, he promises to plant them on his holy mountain. Like a a beautiful flower, they'll sprout and bloom as his worshipers in his land. And he gives them the law, not as punishment, but as his instruction. Yes, firm instruction, but his instruction from a loving father for his children. And even in the law, in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, He lays out 
the blessings and the curses for obedience and for disobedience. Loving fathers are those who lay out the expectations of their, for their children. He had been a caring, consistent, loving father. Even justice and righteousness were part of Israel's constitution, part of why they existed. Genesis 18:19 says, "For I have chosen him, Abraham, in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him." God chose Abraham, and thus Israel, to do justice and righteousness, to love one another. So that the nations would see God's holiness and righteousness, his justice. Is it no wonder that Isaiah in Isaiah 6 says, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, amidst a people of unclean lips. All these sins are discouraging. And we think Israel had it all screwed up, but lest we miss it, as Ray prayed, we have to remember that that our lives apply to this, that this is God's word to us. And there's some significant things we can see about sin and our desires going on in this text. Adolf Schlatter, who was a Swiss-German New Testament scholar, died in 1938, and he worked in Germany for most of the years before he died. And he could see Nazi Germany ramping up, building up. He was a faithful biblical scholar. He wrote a book called Do We Know Jesus? Devotional book. It said this, When selfish desire rules a person, the community is ruptured. When selfish desire rules a person, the community is ruptured. This is the reality we see unfold in Israel's history. Their selfish desires leading them to Acts, practices of sin, sinful practices, to steal from one another, to turn over the the legal code, to acquit the guilty and punish the innocent. It's also a reality we see unfold in our day. Uh, We, I think we often, I often fail to repent, to say that I'm a sinner, the way David did after Nathan rebuked him, that I have sinned. Because we think our faith is our faith. That our sin is private and personal. This text unfolds that it's not true. No sin is merely personal. Even my thoughts and my desires have impact on you. Your thoughts, your desires, your expectations have impact on your family. These sins reveal an important reality for us. These habitual sins, practices, began in Israel because of what they desired. They desired what they loved. James K.A. Smith teaches at Calvin College, philosophy. wrote a book called Desiring the Kingdom, and in that book he says this, To be human is to love, and it is what we love that defines who we are. Our ultimate love is what we worship. And in that book, he talks about how our desires, our loves, 
that feed our desires are manifest in our habits, what we do. Consider the habits of Israel. Habits that, for the most part, were full of ungodliness and sin. And there was a root sin going on here. In Isaiah 5, 24, it says, They rejected the law of the Lord and despised His words. Same, same language used of David. He despised the word of the Lord. Thus he did what he did with Bathsheba, Uriah. And they despise the word of the Lord. Why do they despise the word of the Lord? Why do we despise the word of the Lord? Because they desired the false pleasures, contrary to God's law, because they loved themselves, not God. At our root, we dis- the base sin is our denial of the words of the Lord. Are despising God's word. Even as good Christians, not because we want to do that, but because we love ourselves. We desire ourselves. We want for ourselves. So if we love, we desire ourselves, the way that we act will manifest, will show our loves. As James Smith says, our ultimate love is what we worship. So the question is, yes, what are our loves? What do you love? What do you desire? It can be a difficult question to answer. So work up the ladder a bit. What do you practice? What are your habits? Ask ourselves, what am I doing each day? What do my habits show about who I love? Who I desire? Israel, because they loved themselves, despised the words of the Lord. Thus they bore stink fruit instead of beautiful grapes. And despite all the Lord's provision and care and love, they sinned against Him. Therefore He promises that they will be judged. Isaiah five fifteen and 16. God promises not just to sit idly by. He says, man is humbled and each one is brought low. The eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. So because Israel was designed, was chosen, to display God's justice and righteousness before the nations, this is be holy as I am holy language. Because God was holy, is holy, he always desires his people to be holy after him. To image him before the nations. But because Israel had sinned and gone the way of unrighteousness and injustice, God will display his justice and his righteousness in his judgment of them. See God's love here. If he did not love, he would leave them be. But because he loves, he pursues them, he pursues his children. So God's holy, holy righteousness and justice will be demonstrated in his judgment of the vineyard. And we saw last week, Isaiah 7, Isaiah's offer to Ahaz, and Ahaz's refusal, his pious, self-pious refusal. Because he loved himself, he sought to protect himself and his kingdom by his ways, rather than by the ways of the Lord. So this is a sad, painful, tragic story, no? 
But thankfully, Isaiah, as a beautiful, thick, rich book, this is not the end of the story. God's just, justice, his judgment, as the demonstration of his holiness, of his righteousness, has a purpose, has an end. He will judge the sin of Israel. He will judge the sin of his people in order to renew them, in order to restore them. Turn to Isaiah 27, second part of our story. Remember as you turn, remember Isaiah 6, when God reaffirms his commission of Isaiah and unfolds, unveils his holiness, his glory before Isaiah. And Isaiah, because he sees the Lord's glory, his holiness, sees his own sin. And then he gives him the mission to preach words like Isaiah 5, to preach words like Isaiah 27, that will reveal those who truly love and trust the Lord. And will reveal those who have forgotten the Lord. So God is going to burn out that big tree, uh, Israel, that was supposed to be a great tree full of fruit, going to burn it to the ground. It's going to be ash. But from that ash will perk up that twig. That sprig will sprout. There is the remnant. Because God does not forget his people. Isaiah 49, 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. Even these may forget. Yet I will not forget you. God tells his people. So we come to Isaiah 27. Isaiah's pronounced this message of judgment. And as you read through Isaiah, you see that Isaiah uh, 9, which Tom will cover next week, and 11 speak of this, this one who will come. And Isaiah 13 through 23 lays out that God not, has not just judgment over Israel, not only Israel, but God has judgment over all of creation. So there's all these woes against the nation in Isaiah 13 to 23. And Isaiah 24 to 27 unfolds this this apocalyptic vision. Not just because God's interested in confusing us, but because God has judgment over all of creation. Even that we do not see, God holds judgment over. So in this image... God's justice, His judgment, His righteousness, His holiness over all of creation. We come to Isaiah 27. The restoration. In that day, Isaiah 27.2, a pleasant vineyard. Sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it. Lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. The imagery from Isaiah 5, the promise of punishment, of Removal of protections, the invasion of pests and predators and invaders, the situation is completely reversed. Totally reversed. This is now a pleasant vineyard, a vineyard of wine, a vineyard that fulfills its purpose, as we'll see in verse 6. And rather than promising in, in, Isaiah, in Isaiah 5, verse 6, to remove the rains... Now the Lord promises to be its keeper and to water it. 
Isaiah 5, he promised to remove protections. Here, he is the protection. Isaiah 5, he promised to take away the rains. Here, he himself will, will give the water. In verse 4, I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. The thorns and briars that would take over the vineyard of Isaiah 5 now, God says, will be absent. No thorns, no briars. Because he has no wrath, no anger toward his vineyard, toward his true people. Even in verse 5, it tells us that, uh, sorry, in verse 4, it tells us he would march against them. I would burn them up together, these thorns and briars. Depending on the, the translation, the version you have, it may sound like God is going to now turn around and march against his vineyard. But this is against the thorns and the briars. This is like a passionate husband saying, Give me someone to take on to defend my bride. I am jealous for her. I will defend her. I will vindicate her. I will wipe out all the enemies. God is jealous for his people. He is jealous for you. He desires you. He desires us. Do we desire him? But even in his promise to judge, to to take out true Israel's enemies, in verse 5 he says, let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. The beloved Yahweh God offers out peace even to his enemies. Opportunity for repentance even to his enemies. Even to the Assyrians. Fast forward even to the Babylonians, the Egyptians. As you'll see in Isaiah 11, there'll even be people, God's people will come from among those enemies, from among the Assyrians, from among the Egyptians, from among the Babylonians. God's patient justice, His holy character allows Him to offer forgiveness, peace with His enemies. Do we do this? Or do I, do we want immediate justice? Even when we consider ourselves as the man, as the sinful vineyard. So the wrath of Yahweh will be exhausted in that day, he says. Verse 6, In days to come Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom, and put forth shoots, and fill the whole world with fruit. So that vineyard that produced stink fruits, God will take all the necessary measures to renew them, to restore them. Because He's judged them, because He punishes sins, He can forgive sins. And He will set up all the right conditions so that Jacob and Israel, unified people of God, will bear fruit in all the world. The fruits of justice and righteousness, of loving one another because God first loved us, is the fruit 
that God's people should be bearing in the world today. So how does this happen? How does in that day happen? And in that day, by the way, looks forward, Isaiah looks forward to someday beyond 701 B.C. Keep in mind the threat of Sennacherib. Isaiah's preaching this while Sennacherib's marching through the countryside. Great armies. Something we've talked about in small group before. If you have trouble envisioning Isaiah's situation, Israel's situation, think of Poland or Czechoslovakia and 1939. The armies are ramping up, marching through the land. After that day, sometime after that day, God will restore his people. How does this happen? How does this restoration occur? Israel must repent. God's people must repent for there to be restoration. Isaiah 27, 9. Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. And this will be the full fruit, the full measure of the removal of his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces, no asherim or incense altars will remain standing. When Israel wipes out its idolatry, when it puts to death not just the practices, not just the habits, but their selfish desires, their selfish wants. When God's people truly repent, He will restore them. This is what the practice, our practice, must look like. God tells His people in Isaiah 27, tells His people the future, what will come, so that they will believe Him, they will love Him, they will trust Him now and repent now. So are we repenting, is the question. Rosaria Butterfield wrote a book called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And it's, she's quite the unlikely convert because she was a feminist English and women's studies professor at a prominent university in the Northeast who was a practicing lesbian and who was writing a book about the sins of the religious right in America. And she had written a, an open letter, open letter to the editor or something, and she received constantly hate mail, love mail, hate mail, love mail. And she had a box for the hate mail and a box for the love mail beside her desk. She got one letter from a local pastor that didn't, as she says, fit in either box. But it asked her questions. And through this letter, she began a correspondence with this pastor, and this pastor befriended her. Did not immediately condemn her, but asked her questions about why she desired what she desired, why she believed what she believed. So she began reading the Bible. She says this, The Bible told me to repent, but I didn't feel like repenting. Do you have to feel like repenting in order to repent? How do you repent for a sin that doesn't feel like a sin? How could I and everyone that I knew and loved be in sin? In this crucible of confusion, I learned something important. I learned the first rule of repentance. That repentance requires greater intimacy with God than, within our, that, than with our sin. Repentance requires greater intimacy with God than with our sin. Repentance requires that we draw near to Jesus no matter what. 
And sometimes we have to crawl there on our hands and our knees. Repentance is an intimate affair. And for many of us, intimacy is a terrifying prospect. For far too many of us, we go about our lives as Christians, whether true, real Christians, or pretending Christians. We go it alone. We're like a coin in a corner trying not to be swept away by the broom. We want to hide. Because we want to protect our reputations, our honor, our name. When repentance demands the exact opposite. That we lay aside our desire for our names because God's name is great. Because the beloved Yahweh has tended and cared for us in so many ways we have forgotten. So this story of the vineyard points beyond ourselves, points us beyond ourselves to the great promises of God. That He will do the work of atonement for our sins. So we don't have to self-protect. That He will show us what is real in this world because we, so that we will desire Him and His ways, His justice and His righteousness. So our story has a third part. A part that tells us that the day that Isaiah 27.2 looks for has come. The day of Isaiah 27.6 when true Israel, the, the blossoming vineyard, will bear fruit has come. Isaiah 11.1 1 talks about this little seedling that will sprout out from the stump of Jesse. And its branch will spring out blossoms and bear fruit coming from this son of Jesse, this son of David. So if you go with me to the New Testament, to John 15. As you turn, consider Isaiah 5 and Isaiah 27. There are two vineyards. And how we respond to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of David, how we respond determines which vineyard we are a part How we respond to Jesus determines whether or not we're part of the Isaiah 5 vineyard that's about to be judged or the Isaiah 27 vineyard that's bearing fruit. We even see this in the Gospels. We'll come to John 15 in a second. But in Matthew 21, Jesus interacting with some scribes and Pharisees who seek to test him, catch him in his words, Jesus tells them a story. And he tells them a story about Isaiah 5. That there was this farmer who had a vineyard, and he lent it out to some tenants. And these tenants, however, sinned. They kept killing the messengers who came to tell them that the owner of the vineyard was coming to collect its fruit. And Jesus tells these scribes and Pharisees in Matthew twenty-one thirty-three to 46 that this owner is coming back, and he's going to judge the wicked tenants, and he's going to put them out of the vineyard. So even in the Gospels in Jesus' life, we see him warning of God's judgment for those who do not respond in faith, in love, in trust to God, in Christ. But if we come to John 15, we see there's this other side of the vineyard, this vineyard that's renewed and restored. I think Jesus in John 15, Jesus who's the Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of God in the flesh, announces that the day of Isaiah 27 has come about in his life and in the lives of his disciples. 
I am the true vine, Jesus says, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, he judges. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. God tenderly loves for his people and in his people by pruning back their selfish desires so that the fruits of desire for God and his ways springs forth. Verse 4, abide in me, Jesus says to his disciples, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in the vine. I am the vine and you are the branches. Jesus announces that in his life, in his body, his very existence, he brings about the restoration of God's true people. That those who have waited faithfully for God's promises to be fulfilled are now being fulfilled in Christ. That those who have set their loves on God despite the destruction of their homes because of invaders despite the destruction of their lives, despite the loss of family, of farmland, of food. Above all things, they wanted God. And in Jesus' life, we see God in the flesh. So whoever abides in me, Jesus says, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Indeed, this is why the disciples exist, Jesus says. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. God's love for his people is total. God's love for his Son is total. So that those who respond in love and faithful relationship to Jesus will bear fruit. John fifteen sixteen. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus promises his disciples that he chose them, he called them so that they would bear fruit. Remember, he's about to leave, he's about to depart from them. But he chose them so that they would bear fruit in the world. That vine, like Isaiah 27, 6 sprouting and spreading throughout the world. We, God's people, are supposed to bear fruit throughout the world. And our practice of love for one another demonstrates God's holiness, His justice, His righteousness, His love for the world in us and through us. Remember, Jesus' words are spoken in the shadow of the cross. So that the way that this happens, the way that we bear fruit, is not because we're good people, obviously. It's not because we work hard enough. It's because, as Jim Hamilton's book title says, God's glory is in salvation through judgment. And we see that happen to Jesus on the cross. Is not his cross the perfect illustration of the way God judges in order to save? That he sends his son to the cross because of his great holiness. So that he would put his son to death on our behalf for us because of our sins. Because we are the man who has sinned. We're the vineyard that has borne bad fruit. 
But God sends His Son to the cross to die so that Yahweh, so that the Lord of all creation could then look at us and say, I have no wrath. So that when Jesus raises from the dead on the third day, by the Holy Spirit, God's power raises Him from the dead. That power then can be passed on to us, to God's people. So the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we can bear much fruit in this world. So that day that Isaiah 27 looks forward to has come. It's been announced in Jesus' life, His death and His resurrection. And He leaves His disciples so that they will do the work of bearing the fruit. Which is a work that God's total love makes happen. So the question then for us, for you, is where do you fit in this story? Is this a story that you know? Is this a story that plays in your heart and your head, that shapes your desires, your expectations? If you are not a Christian here today, do you confess, do you recognize that you're in rebellion to the Holy God? That you've despised the words of the Lord because you desire self? Remember Isaiah 27.5, though. God holds out that promise of peace even to his enemies because of Christ. We have peace with God. Isaiah 1 says, Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. There is time for repentance. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. Where are you in this story? Christians, the large majority of this room, congregation, we need to evaluate our habits, our practices that show our desires, that show our loves. Consider Isaiah 5. Consider those woes. What are we practicing? What are we doing that's revealing what we are loving, who we are loving? We need to practice prayerful repentance before the Lord and one another. If selfish desire ruptures the community, we have to repent of our selfish desire. To practice also patience with one another. The story of the Old Testament is the story of God's faithfulness and His patience with His sinful people. If God is this patient with His people, with me, with you, Should we not, as a demonstration of God's righteousness, of His justice, of His love, return that patience to one another and not demand immediate fruit? took three or four years for fruit to bear from a vine. Fruit is a slow thing. Practice patience with one another. And finally, let us practice thankfulness to God and praise to Him for His total love for us in Christ that demands a total response from us. We want to, as we do each week, we want to pray now as a congregation and invite you to pray loudly and briefly along the lines we've looked at this story today. Loudly and briefly and also corporately because our sin but also our obedience, our love of God matters for one another. 
So let's, by God's Spirit, ask for His grace now as we pray, and then David will come and close us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your deep, deep love for us in Christ Jesus so that we may bear fruit by the Holy Spirit. Fruits that, yes, please You, God, but also demonstrate Your love, Your holiness, for all your creation. Give us your grace, we pray now, Lord, by the Spirit to do this, to love one another as you've loved us, we pray.